Hey, everybody. This is Lisa Sharon Harper from Freedom Road Podcast. And I am so excited for the next two episodes because, hey, I started a new podcast with three really awesome friends, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, and Reverend Michael Ray Matthews. And together, the four of us make the four. (laughs) Is that not cool or what? You can find out more about us at thefour.black. So we get to talk about really deep things and also laugh a whole lot. And I just wanted you to hear it. So that's why for the next two months, we're going to be featuring two episodes from the four. The first one you're going to hear is Kristen Dumay. She is an historian and done an amazing work, particularly digging into how did we get to this moment, this January 6th moment within evangelical America. So you'll get more of an introduction to her in the actual podcast. And then in August, we're going to be dropping into the feed, the episode with Ruby Sales, who is like an auntie, literally actually kind of like an auntie to me, not by blood, but by sweat, right? So she and my mom were both in the movement together and she came and spoke to us at the four and you will not want to miss what she has to say, okay? So everybody sit back, hold on to your seats because Auntie Ruby is about to blow your mind. We gon' have a time, good time on good time. We gon' have a time, good time on good time. We gon' have a time, when we all, all get together. We gon' have a time. Everybody needs a space to be themselves. The Four. Everybody needs a space where they're centered. The Four. Everybody needs a space that speaks about who they are. Stay tuned for the four. A fearsome faith foursome. Talking black life, love, joy, and power. That's deep. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm Michael Ray Matthews. I'm Jackie Lewis. I am Otis Moss III. We're glad you're here to join in these conversations with us. We're here at the four. What are some quotes that stick with you that are not scripture? Like, what are the quotes that have become your go-to quotes that are just not scripture? (laughs) Howard Thurman, that God places a crown above our heads. We spend the rest of our lives growing tall enough to wear. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so good. Go Howard Thurman. Every Morehouse person is there. (laughs) Really? Oh, that was, yeah, that was was on on the wall of the, the King Chapel. What I was just going to say was what my mother would tell us every time we went on a date. And I don't know if that's podcast appropriate. But <laughs> she'd be like, I love you, baby. Keep your bloomers up and your dress down. Okay, bye-bye. And give me some sugar. <laughs> like, oh, that's so cute. I think, I think her mother must have said it because it was very Mississippi sounding. Right. How yeah. about you, Michael Ray? Here's another roomie. Oh. Close the language door. Open the love window. The moon won't use the door see that i'm trying to understand it's a great image the moon won't use the door only the window window. wow Rumi, Rumi got some stuff if you do something from your soul it's a river it's a joy that's my latest jam from me is that that's a ruby one yeah if you do something from your soul it's a river it's a joy i like that from the movie fear of a black hat if you get on that bus, you'll get there. 
Okay. That's what it sounds like. That was for people. I don't that bus. <laughs> Y'all get there. But you have to stay in that way. Yeah. You know, that bus. You get there. Everybody's looking like, okay. That's obvious. Oh, my God. Okay. There we go. Anybody else? Any others? How about Ndozaki Shange? I'll bet Ooh. you like that, too, right? I yeah. found God in myself, and I love her fiercely. Oh, yes. I love that. That is a you quote. It is so. Did she know you? Did you know? Her? I did not, but we just missed each other. All oh. right. Because you are the Aaron kind of, Brown. you embody her spirit. She and I are the same people. So I am so excited for today's conversation. <laughs> I really am. I mean, I've been, I've been swimming in the research for my book. I mean, for a long time, right? Fortune, <laughs> how race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all. And the book traces 10 generations of my family story from 1682 all the way to Inauguration Day 2021. 30 years of research went into this and to reveal the cost of race laws and structures and systems on my family and like all of our families, African-American families. And so here's the thing. I sent the manuscript to Fortune to Auntie Ruby in order, Auntie Ruby Sales, in order to get her feedback. She's a public theologian. She's an activist. She's the founder of Spirit House. Um, project and her TED talk, Hello Somebody, has now been viewed by almost two million people. Will be. Wow. So two million. Wow. Let me get two million here. Two, two million. million. Hello. <laughs> so, you know, I was really honored. She actually read it. She actually read the book and from cover to cover. And she gave me a call. And I so like I was totally shaking in my boots. I was like, oh my God, what's she going to say? Because she was literally one of the first people to read it. And, and, you know, and she tells it to you straight. She does not mince words. Straight, no chaser. At all, right? right? And so she says, make sure they understand the deeper point of your family story. And then I was like, what is that, auntie? <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't even know the deeper point of my own family story. Because, you know, we're, I'm in it for a long time. So I'm just like in the details now. But she says, it's not only that they struggled. It's that in every generation, they, they helped, they served the community, and they found a way to fly above and through the oppression. Mm-hmm. Right? That's I was beautiful. like, that's good. I was like, really? Wow, thank you so much. for sh-. I, She reflected back to me something I didn't even see. And right now, we are living in a crazy time. Absolutely. We are living... In a Jim Crow time, but Jim Crow was not even in, just in the South. Jim Crow, Jim Crow had a great migration, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. 49 states have tried to introduce more than 425 voter suppression bills. 22 states have banned teaching on critical race theory. We've been talking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Plus COVID-19 and climate change, right? So, and we see that those are exacerbating the vulnerability of African-Americans all over the country. So we are in crisis. We're in like total crisis mode. Our people are in crisis. So I asked Auntie Ruby to come and join us today. Hello, Auntie Ruby. She is here. Hello. (laughs) Oh, we're so happy to have you here. I asked her to come here because we need, this is the time to hear from the elders. Yeah. We need to hear from the elders to remember what it is that we learned from our families about resilience about our family's resilience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I think about it, I think about the reality that 
our families, our ancestors, our aunties, our grandmothers went through even more than what we're going through here, and they made it through. Mm-hmm. So we need, we, need, we need what they have. So I want to start with a question for each of you, just to reflect on, and then I'm going to bring in Auntie Ruby. Has there been a moment in the last two years, think about, you know, COVID, George Floyd's death, election cray-cray, all of that, when you found yourself consciously leaning on lessons passed down to you from your family? I learned lessons I didn't know were there. Mm. We, in Faith in Action, were getting ready for the big organizing year that was going to be around the census right, right, and the election. And so by way of the census, I found my third great-grandmother on a slave record mm. and her son on a voter roll. My God. And I was like, I think the ancestors are trying to say something. They are trying to speak. And then we found ourselves in the middle of a pandemic. And Delcy Faulkner Harkness and Green Harkness walked with me through the entire year of 2020, reminding me that our struggle is not just multi-generational, not just intergenerational, but transgenerational. Mm-hmm. That the struggle is as true now as it was then for the very same thing. Mm-hmm. The very same. To count, to matter, yeah. to be able to vote, yeah. to be free. That is deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you, brother. I think... You know, during COVID, these last two years, I was writing Fierce Love and kind of stepping back into some mom stuff really fully. And she died four years ago, Lisa. But she was so present. Mm. Like, not like a ghost. Like, just really resurrected. Mm -hmm. Really resurrected. Mm -hmm. And a real conversation partner. And... I started hearing the way she taught, the way she would say what she would say. Not just that she would say it, but she had a kind of sing song. How you do go? How you doing, precious? Mm. Emma and Richard's daughter, Reverend Jackie, Reverend Doctor Jackie. She just had a playful kind of like thing she would do, and then she'd get to Jack the Beanstalk, which is what she called me when I was little. <laughs> I really do feel, Lisa, that her resi- her sunniness, and her resilience are mine, and her hearing her voice in my ear really reminded me of, of a gift that she gave me. Literally, yeah. Like, literally, yeah. I understand that. Yeah. There's something, there's something about the ability to, the ability not just to even bounce back, but to just walk over cold. That's, yeah. Mm. And that's different, right? Yeah. That's, that's mommy. She walked through some stuff. Yeah. Picking cotton when she was three. Yeah. Raising her, her big brother. Yeah. How about you, Otis? Similar to Michael Ray, the the work around family, the work on the movie, Otis's Dream, I think I've mentioned it to you yes. before. And we started that work in 2019, trying to get that production done prior to the voting, especially in Georgia, yes. and so that we yeah. could deploy it in Georgia. But it, I'd never made the certain connections. So... I'd always associated my mother and my father in reference to the freedom movement. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't associate my grandmother and grandfather in the same way. Wow. So it dawned on me as my father's being interviewed for the documentary and we had to, you know, pull these pictures together when he was doing work and when mom was doing work and all that. And then I started thinking about all of his siblings, every single sibling, the all five, all five of them were involved in voting rights work. Wow. And it was because they witnessed their father sharecropper who attempts to vote in Georgia and how dangerous that, you know, that was to, to walk those miles at night alone, black man. Mm-hmm. And he's denied, you know, that right. But then he, inst- he tells him that's, the, that's every single one of my aunts and uncles said, yeah, we were told that you have to vote. So my father in the movement, my, my auntie, you know, she enters the air force, she goes to the university of Michigan and she enters in terms of the voting rights piece but from a feminist perspective. So she's she's doing work on women, black women's behalf of voting. Then my other aunt, who is, she is, she she's over cafeteria work in the Detroit public schools. She enters that work through the church of doing voting rights. Then my uncle, who works for a fire department, he enters that work through unions. Wow. Uh, so, so everybody <coughs> enters the work. But it's all work that's been passed down. And I never made the, I didn't say, that oh. That is really something else. That's, that's why they do this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that was their, you know, that was their gift from their parents, yeah. you know, to, to their children. And then it's passed on to me. It's passed on to, to my son and to my daughter. And it's, it was just like, it just, it hit me. It was like, wow, there's a connection. That we are not, we are not islands, right? We are not, there are no bootstraps there. Are, mm-hmm. We are all literally, we are literally our ancestors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we literally do carry, carry their burdens and, and also their calls. I want to bring in Auntie Ruby. And for those of you who don't know, I call her Auntie Ruby as opposed to mama, which a lot of other people call her because she's like my movement auntie. She was a good friend with my mom and they were movement sisters in SNCC. And so, Auntie, thank you so much for showing up today. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask you first, Auntie, it's been really, really fun to talk with you about your own family and the family search that you've been doing. And I wanted to ask, you know, have you found any stories of resilience in your own family stories that you have surfaced? Well, when I think about Black family stories, I have to say two things in terms of my family stories. Mm -hmm. While they represent the universal reality of being Black in the white supremacist world, they're also a particular story of the community of the the descendants of enslaved Africans in the South. Mm -hmm. So mine is a particular story of Southern Black people who were engaged in a fist-to-cuff struggle with white America from Reconstruction all the way up to the Southern Freedom Movement. Mm-hmm. And so it's within that context that I see my family. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about Black family, I, know, I also, I do not merely look at them through the white gaze. I have a double optic where I simultaneously look at my family, not only to, to what, who they were in white America, but also who they were with each other. 
And that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. And so that my grandmother, all the three cells, was born in 1876, was a school teacher in the South, and it came from a family of what I would say strivers, because I don't forget that that the resilience that Black people had was very much manifested during Black Reconstruction, mm. where the primary identification of Black families was that they were, at, they intended to advance. They were advancing yes. our community, mm-hmm. and they were outstanding in that advancement. And because they were so outstanding, it precipitated a certain kind of response from white America, mm-hmm. which was uh, centered around massacres, burnings, lynchings, whippings, rape, kinds of retaliatory, heinous crimes. Wow. And so when I think about the resilience, so the question that I always ask is, how did my grandmother and my grandfather navigate that terrain without becoming broken reed birds? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the way that they did it was that they developed a spiritual modality. And what they did was seal off their inner lives. And they did not allow the the culture whiteness to totally invade who they were on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so they built a fence around themselves. And that fence allowed them to stand strong and to ground themselves in a society that, that did not mean for them to stand or to survive. Mm. And so they would think about and so, yes, they experienced trauma. Yes, they were shattered. And the Black family had always been a site of white violence and white assault, whether it was through uh, separation during enslavement, whether it was through the, the, the tyranny of sexual crimes against Black women and the decimation of Black men's uh, masculinity, whether it was, again, whether it was uh, the rape of Black women during Jim Crow mm-hmm. era in the South. The Black family was, and whether it was through migration for the necessity of survival, mm-hmm. the Black family was always not only a site of, of terror for white America, but it was also a deep, it was what, what I call one of the strongholds of Black survival. And I cannot stress enough, it is really important to understand the spiritual discipline that our ancestors possessed, that allowed them to say, I can't control my outer world, but I can control my inner life. <laughs> and you're not going to make me hate you. <laughs> and I have a right, I have a right to this real life. <laughs> and so you might say that I'm property, but I want to insert in my spiritual past that I too have a right to the tree of life. And that was, that was the family tradition that was the family culture that 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 grew me as a southern black woman mm. that allowed me to grow up in the midst of all of that white terror and not even know that it existed do you think that i mean one of the things that that when i think back to your family being a southern family and you talked about the the growth the the development the flourishing really that black families found in reconstruction do you think that 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 experience of of freedom for those 11 years contributed to the ability to hold on in the midst of the oppression that came afterwards 
question? I think from the moment of captivity, when free Africans were captured, mm-hmm. and they were put on those sites of terror that we call slave ships, yeah. but they were really floating prisons. Mm. And so those sites of terror that we call slave ships, they had to create, they mm. had to reinvent themselves. And so they moved here, they reinvent, reinvented themselves beyond tribal lines. And they became one with each other based on their common experience on those ships. And so I think it was in that moment that the elasticity of the Black family was born. Hmm. Now, don't forget that we, we talk about the Black family during enslavement. And although the Black family was really, in many ways, shattered, mm-hmm. one of the things that the Black family kept itself intact by the naming parents. You can look at five generations of Black people and you'll see the same names. Yes. Mm. (laughs) And so we we develop ways of continuing Mm. each other, ways of of, of being intimate with each other despite the pervasive nature of an enslavement system that that, that tried to render us separate from each other. You mentioned, just a little bit ago, you mentioned that, that what it meant to be and a black family in the South, in the Southern Freedom Movement, and not just the Southern yes. Freedom Movement, but is that you lived outside of the white gaze. You were, you, or you cloistered yourselves off. You had, you had a buffer between you and the white world. And yes. that's what allowed for some of the flourishing. That really strikes me because that is different from our experience up North, yeah. where there was more of, of, what do you call it? An imposition of, of, the white gaze in our lives because we were not in the dominant. We were not the majority um, people in the North. And yes. And yet. Yes. Yeah. Because what black people did in the South was that we created a kind of culture of Mm -hmm. education that was long-term running towards excellence. And black men met in some Alabama in 1865. Mm on the heels of, of enslavement in the early days of emancipation, mm-hmm. where they pledged their utmost endeavors to educate the young for the advancement of the race and for the preservation of our rights and liberty. Mm-hmm. And that became a community project that Black families, Black teachers, everybody in the Black community threw, threw their lot in with that, with that project. And what that meant was that they were determined that we they would they 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 drew a line in the sand. This is really true. They 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 said, okay, we will accommodate as much of segregation as is possible, mm-hmm. but our children are off limits. Mm. And so you didn't have white people coming to Tuskegee. You didn't have white people going to Spelling or Morehouse. Mm-hmm. You didn't have white people coming to Carver High School. You didn't have people harassing us about football games. Wow. Because and so that way, and so my significant others, I did not feel marginalized because in the black community I was very significant. Mm-hmm. My family was very significant. We were well known in the black community mm-hmm. as being ourselves children. My father was a preacher, and so he was well known. My mother was a nurse, so mm-hmm. she was well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm wow. saying that I did not realize that white people hated me or that that. That, that that the mean of segregation as I joined the movement, but what black people did, what they were geniuses at, they protected us and they shielded us 
from the from the meanness of white America. That's amazing. And to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what is it that you think that, that you learned from your family that led you to join SNCC, you know, and, and be there in 1966 to, to meet my mom when y'all were down in Atlanta? Yes, I learned what they taught us. They operated from the pedagogy of somebodyness. Mm-hmm. And so I learned that I was somebody. And you could not have told me that there was anybody in the world better than me. Because by the time I got <laughs> sick, I thought I was going to be a world leader. Because that's why I have been told, because I had a big power. <laughs> and it has come true. You're going to be a great lawyer. And that our careers, our aspirations mm-hmm. were never separate from the destiny of our people. And mm-hmm. I grew up with the generation. My mother was a race woman. My father mm-hmm. was a race man. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a generation of people who call themselves race people. Mm-hmm. And that did not mean that they were racist. What it meant was that they aimed to move forward, not only their own lives, but to lift as they climb the race. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what did SNCC teach you about resilience? Oh, my God. What SNCC taught me is that ordinary Black people, although we tend to make icons and raise up individual people and have forgotten that the resilience in the movement could be best expressed in the lives of sharecroppers, in the lives of maids, in the mm-hmm. lives of ordinary Black people who lived in those Black rough counties, which were the site of terror, which were the sites where the movement took place. Had it not been for the resilience of ordinary people, the movement would have died a, 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 a death. Wow. But, but it was the, it was the, splend, the splendor, the, the profound courage. Mm-hmm. Because, you see, I was a student at Tuskegee. Yeah. I could always pick up my suitcase and go back home mm-hmm. with a night rider's phone. Mm-hmm. I could yeah. always pick up my suitcase and go back home to my mother's house when they kicked people off of their land. Mm-hmm. And so I did not have the same losses at stake that the, that, that ordinary Black people. So we need to remember that the resilience of Black people have always been embodied in the lives of ordinary Black people mm-hmm. who did so extraordinary good. things. Mm-hmm. That is so good. so good. So, Auntie Ruby, last question before I bring in the four, the other three. What do we need in order to fly that we used mm. to have, but we don't tend to have so much anymore. And then how do we get it back? We need to have uh, multiple sites. Well, and, and we need to speak in tongues about our lives. What did you just say? Stuff. Say that again. Preacher. We need to speak in tongues, about multiple tongues about our lives. Yeah. We need to stop calling ourselves marginalized because when you say that it's the ultimate description of who we are, that means that you see us clearly through the eyes of white America. Right. And if we are significant to each other and to our community and to the world. So we have to talk about being marginalized within the state, mm-hmm. but also simultaneously being significant with each other. And so I think that what I have worried most about is that what the segregation did was not only to decimate our relationships with each other, yep. but also it gave it gave us social, spiritual cataracts. 
that interfere with the way in which we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we constantly look out at the world through, 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 white, through a white gaze, hmm. always seeing ourselves through how white people see us. Wow. Never, never valuing the ways in which we see ourselves. And Ralph Ellison put it very well asked the question, are we merely what white people have made of us? Are we also what we made of our own lives? Well, and right. that I don't hear enough of that today. What I hear is all about suffering and nothing about victory. What I hear about is about what white people have done to us and not, and not enough about what we've done for each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really important to keep those things together simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So I would like for us to have a Pentecost moment where we are speaking in tongues about the most eventual meeting of our lives as African-American people. Mm-hmm who navigated the troubled waters of enslavement, mm. southern apartheid, without becoming, as St. Julian says, broken wing words. Ruby. Thank you so much, Ruby. I'm going to turn to the, to the other three here and ask what, what questions do you have for Auntie Ruby or reflections on what she said so far? One thought, one thought that does come to mind, Otis, you said, I mean, in your reflections on, on Fortune, you were saying that the very act of Black people knowing their history is subversive, is resilience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then any question that you have for Mama Ruby? Well, when I read Fortune, mm-hmm. it spoke to me around the revolutionary nature of claiming your story. Mm. That for Black people, we always have a story prescribed to us saying that this is who you are and therefore it's it's a script to, right. as as a playwright as you are as we were talking um, about <laughs> and so you know that white supremacy writes a script mm-hmm. and says play this part and then under certain conditions we're given some moments to to do improvisation for the script but we're still in the script. Yeah. That's, That's right. right. In their script. In their script. That's right. And when we take hold of our story, that's when we burn their script and we start writing on our oh. own. Come on. Oh. You know. oh, good. Yes. Good. And it goes back to what Auntie Ruby was just saying. She was just saying that the 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 ownership <laughs> of our lives, not seeing it through the white gaze. I love that. And and then really having to claim it all. Like if I am not a victim then I am a full human being and I need to take ownership of it, of it all. That's really good. Who else? Ruby, I, so good to see you. I, I always love yeah. the way you say, right. I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always love the way you say that the people who raised you were spiritual geniuses. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder, what did they teach you about speaking in tongues mm-hmm. that we can pass on to the next generations? Mm-hmm. How, what would we do? That's so good. Yeah. First of all, in order to speak in tongues, you have to value the language that you've inherited. Mm-hmm. You can't reduce it to back in the day mm-hmm. by calling it back in the day. Mm-hmm. I never will talk about my ancestors as being back in the day because mm-hmm. I saw myself as part of the country, a mm-hmm. continuum. So mm-hmm. it really is important to connect yourself with the labor, not to dismiss our people Amen. as being ignorant. For example, look at the spirituals and understand that the spirituals were black people speaking in parables yes. in a world where it was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. They had talked about wanting to be free. So freedom became heaven 
Yeah. And so, yeah. and so mm-hmm. the tree of life became democracy. Yes. It's still awaiting that they were going to run away. Mm-hmm. And so that when you understand that and really understand the complexity of, of, of the Black soul in this country and our ancestors and how incredibly insightful and just in many ways brilliant they were mm-hmm. because they had to make a way out of no way. Yeah. Mm. And so what I would say to young people and for everybody today is that we must go back mm. and we must learn to love our ancestors as we want other, as we love ourselves. That's so and good. I, we do. That's so good. And when we do that, sometimeiness and their back bareness, in a way, we're diminishing them, and therefore we're diminishing ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's or so good. Or we say that's really old stuff. Uh-huh. Well, you know, we don't say that. We studied George Washington, and we studied Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you're saying that's old stuff. Let's not study that. That's so Why true. Why is it that yeah. we not take that fountains of wisdom mm-hmm. as part of our collective consciousness? Uh, as resources that we draw on in a time of trouble, for that we that we find the resources that we need in order to mm-hmm. to move forward. For example, mm-hmm. how is it that our ancestors survived transitions? We're in a transitional world of the fourth industrial revolution mm-hmm. that has changed the very meaning of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And how are we navigating that? What mm-hmm. resources do we bring to this conversation that? that says that we will survive in a world of, of nanotechnology where white Americans with their insidious history, where they have the, the power to sequence, to do gene sequencing, to hmm. change the very meaning of a bi- a biology and a, bi- and a biology, biological makeup, our biological makeup. How are we, what would our ancestors, how would they deal with this? Mm-hmm. Would they become seduced by it? Oh, and, and go forward in it without asking questions, or oh, they still have some part of themselves that they would never give over to the intoxication of the, of technocracy. Okay, now. How would you handle that? <laughs> you said technocracy. Mm-hmm. I never yeah. heard that word before. That's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. That's really technocracy. Lord. Y'all take that. Yes, we live in a capitalist technocracy where very few lives matter, and Black lives matter least of all lives. We live in a capitalist technocracy where human lives are more and more disposable in a world of automation, robots, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, and was it the robots, artificial intelligence? So I bring this up because when I say that it's changed the meaning of what it means to be human, mm-hmm. it's also changed the way in which we live with each other, communicate with each other, and work yeah. with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is it that we deal with intimacy in a world where the whole way in which we communicate with each other has been really changed tremendously, and that the intimacy that we once known has been in the state of what they call disruption, given the technocracy that we live in today? Because I, what I hear you talking about is this question of the the era of transition. And that we've been yes. through those transitions and, and we're here now. We're in and disruption. Right. And disruption. We're in an era of disruption right now. So how do you see it? I mean, Auntie Ruby, how do you see when you look back, how did they deal with that disruption and transition that we can, what can we draw from here? Well, I'll just ask you, because that's what it meant to be captive or free people to be captured and put on a, a site, uh, put on a slave ship 
mm-hmm. in parts of the country where they were strangers in a strange land. And mm-hmm. so they experienced great deals of disruption. So I asked the three of you, how do you think that your ancestors survived the disruption? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Honestly, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll throw out one thought. They had to have a deep spirituality and that inner life you were talking about had to be the anchor because there was nothing that was going to be assured in terms of from day to day that was on the outside. Nothing. And they had to have an imagination for something better. I mean, we've been talking about that, Ruby, a little bit, how film, how books, how stories, how our Mm -hmm. spirituality helps us imagine a better way. Mm -hmm. They knew, they imagined that they belonged to the to yeah. the tree of life. They imagined yeah. that they had a role yeah. in the reign of God. And not only did they imagine it, but they sang it. My foot has been tapping My the whole mama. time. Since yeah. this Mama Ruby said, I got right, right, right to the tree of life. I've been like, oh, Mary, run. <laughs> Tell Martha, run. <laughs> Tell Mary, run. I said, you got a right to the tree of life. That's all I've been tapping this whole time. This whole <laughs> conversation, they are just, the ancestors are just in me right now. And I just think it's really important that we know that part of our spirituality, part of our knowing is in the songs that mm-hmm. we sing. That's beautiful. And, you know, what I hope we'll also talk about with, with Mama Ruby is the, the importance of song in this moment. Because I think that yes. we, mm-hmm. we have to remember to speak in that tongue. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. That's, that's tongues. really good. That's tongues. Mm-hmm. Mama Ruby, how important is song to you? Oh, my goodness. Song has been one of the most important cultural resources that I have carried with me mm. through the hills and valleys of my own life. Mm. And I relied on song in the Southern Arena movement mm-hmm. after Jonathan was killed and trying to save my life. He did save my life. Mm-hmm. And for days I was mute and I couldn't speak, but I could, but I could sing. Wow. And black songs have always resonated. Have been my watering hole and my walking stick in the dry land, mm-hmm. and so the and so whether it's the blues or the spirituals or this gospel, every night I turn I turn on my YouTube and I listen to a black gospel song or a spiritual song before I lay myself down to sleep. Another thing that that I think is just as important to me is the subversive nature of black prayers. Mm-hmm. Now you can imagine that when black folk would utter out loud in a society where white men told them that they were the masters and they were responsible for their sitting down and their getting up. When black people say, dear God, master God, father God, mm. that was subversive. Thank you for putting breath in my body. Well, white male masters would want them to think that they put breath in their body. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it was all of these modalities, song and prayer. Black, those things are very important to me, and I have drawn on them. And I love to hear old Black people pray, because when they pray, mm-hmm. they tell the story of what it has meant to be strangers in a strange land mm-hmm. and how they survived and how they got old. And it gives me the courage to know that nothing, not even death, can separate me from the love of God. Amen. How about you, Otis? Mother Ruby, I have a have a question. What what is the song that you sing that either brings you delight, brings you strength, 
or just brings you joy? Mm. Well, right now I've been listening to Albertina Walker. <laughs> and mm. I like a building not made by hand. Mm. I've got a building not made by hand. I love that song because it talks about transcendence. It challenges the whole notion that reality is something material. It says that reality is also spiritual. It's also not just simply what we can see and touch, but it's also that which is not seen and that which cannot be touched. Mm. So I love that. Mm. That's so good. I have a question for for Mama Ruby. I want to know, when you look, you're a futurist, you're looking at the future and nanotechnology and AI and all of that, but I also know that you think about the generations and yes. you are really, really focused on the next generations, uh, millennials and, and Gen Z. And I want to know when you look at them, how do you see their spirituality carrying them through what's coming, especially since most of them are not churched? So what's, where is, where is the spirituality coming from or where does it need to come from or where is it already coming from that we may not be aware of? I, I think that it's individually driven. Mm-hmm. And we say it's, it's a deep wellspring that, that is part of a collective consciousness that still lives in Black people. Because you have to have some spirituality to get up in the morning and to move forward with some degree of pragmatic optimism. So that's the spiritual. And so, yes, I do see the evidence of some spiritual, spirituality, but the problem is it's not conscious. It's not organized. It's not embodied mm-hmm. collectively. It's individually driven. Mm-hmm. And I must tell you, I think about Fannie Hamer, and I must ask, him, where when Fannie Hamer was in the movement all over the world, People called her name, and Black women were heroes. And other people in different countries, the Aborigines, Tanzanians, again, a lot of their struggle, South Africa, after Black women, the work that we were doing in the movement, mm-hmm. after, black, after Black men. And I wondered, how did we go from San Luis to Megan Thee Stallion in three generations, mm-hmm. where our power is seen in our genitalia and not in our spirits? And so I really worry that that unless something changes tremendously and we stop seeing ourselves through the eyes of white stereotypes of studs and wards, mm. I wonder will we get to uh, how far will we make it in a society that has increased is 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 necessity well not, well let me say it this way where because of automation. We're no longer needed as part of the labor project, and we're being isolated. It's rural sites of desolation, separate from supermarkets, separate from uh, health centers, se- separate from, cut off from a public, good public schools, cut off from transportation, and therefore cut off from jobs. And so that is what, how, if the more and more disposable we become, hmm. I worry. Mm-hmm. That that your generation will not get to another fifty can years. I, can I join Ruby right there? Can I join Mama Ruby there? Mama Ruby, I wonder also if, just to take your thoughts a step further, the way the digit the digitization of life, the AI of life, 
the cartoons of life, the memes of life, the false self that is portrayed in life, Mm. in those spaces, distance us away from our true, royal, badass, amazing, spiritual geniusness, you know? Like, there's a giant gap between who we are and what all that portrays us to be that I think allows young people to think it's heroic to wear a sheer dress on the red carpet. I mean, I don't care if you do, but it's not heroic. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's not sheer dress. I'm good on you. Go girl. But is that really what it is? And so I just think, I think that's part of it too, right? Ruby, that it f- creates a false, it creates distance from our humanity. It's, yes. And we right. don't know each other. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing that I would say that's very, very critically important for us to think about is have we really asked the fundamental question, what does it mean to be free? And why is it that we allowed our struggle for freedom, which put the power in the hands of people, because we say freedom songs are the Southern Freedom Movement. We live in freedom houses. We had freedom summer, and we did freedom rides. And how is it that we allowed the, the, the larger universal territory of freedom to reduce to, to be reduced to the smallness of civil rights? Mm. And then we allow our struggle to be revised and minimized the civil rights. We took the power out of our hands and put the power in the hands of politicians. And so that having done that, our people suffer from a great deal of dismemory. Mm-hmm. We believe that what we have is what white people gave us hmm. and not what we took from white folk and that we won hmm. great victories, that Southern was a victory. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was a victory. So hmm. powerful was a victory that it changed the whole face of the modern Democratic Party. Hmm. It's in all those Southern Democrats running out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, mm-hmm. where they live today. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Democratic Party post during the Southern Freedom Movement was very different than what it is today. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really believe that it, it is so important for us to understand that our struggle from the time we were captured has been a struggle for freedom. Yeah, Harriet mm-hmm. Tugman didn't run away from civil rights. She went away to be free. Mm. What? That is a, that's a quote. Mm. That is a quote. And so we, we, and so that we become guilty of idolatry. Mm -hmm. We bow down at the altar of whiteness. And we think that the source of our lives is whiteness. It's a culture of whiteness. And we, how many of us go to church on Sunday and hear the community stand up and thank God not for a car, not for a mm. but thank God for where God brought us, that God brought us out of the terror vows of segregation into the bright land of freedom. Mm. How many times do we remember that it was God who brought us out of out of those mm. out of that barren land mm. and, set, mm. and set our feet on the fertile ground of freedom? How many of us remember that? How mm. many of us ever stopped to thank the ordinary black person in Selma, Alabama who like Betty Fikes, who, who was a 16-year-old Black girl who put mm-hmm. everything on the line for freedom. Mm-hmm. How many of us, instead, we look at white people and we constantly keep our gaze in our eyes instead of doing what Zora Neale Hurston said, watch the God. 
we keep our eyes watching whiteness. Mm. And, and even when we're talking about black people, we're not talking to each other. We're talking to other black people, white people. We're talking to white people about black people, trying mm. to convince them that we're worthy of their affection, mm. trying to convince them that mm -mm. we're worthy of being respected. <laughs> and I'm being very clear today because if we don't get this straight, we will not survive in a country where genocide is calling part of white America. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Mama Ruby. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much. If we go we, to school with Mama Ruby. We do. Uh, just, just, just go to school and you just <laughs> leave there thinking, what's next? And we say Dean Mother. Dean Mother. Yes, Dean Mother. Dean Mother Ruby. Mother. It's a little bit of school Mother and a little Ruby. bit of church. No, I'm yes. Yes. Dean, <laughs> Dean Mother. A little bit of church as well. A little bit of church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm really. going to say one thing. This is not on the record, but I do want to say one of the ways in which Black people survive was they developed with theology mm -hmm. and the spirituality of pragmatic optimism, mm -hmm. where they were able to look at the world with all of its warts, but still have hope that they could change the world. Mm -hmm. So that, that was their call, pragmatic optimism. So keep that in mind. How about we keep that in the recording? Yes. yes. Yeah, that's not off the record. That's, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's definitely on the record. Really record. Yes. You know, one of the things that I've just really enjoyed about you, Mama Ruby, is that you you are one who has been leading for a long time and there's a there's a interesting book out there i think it's called faithfulness and a long walk in the same direction something like that and that's been your life you've been walking in the same direction mm -hmm. for your whole life and so you have gotten so far ahead of where so many of us are and yet you have not left us you have turned back you've reached your hand out you said come here child let me let's walk together let's roll together <laughs> in your in your roller thing which is really cool i mean i think that there's just a really beautiful and powerful way that you have you have you've been a shepherd so i want to thank you for that Thank you so much, Auntie Ruby, for right, being you. with us today and for literally for being the sage, the Dean Mother, mm -hmm. the Dean Mother. Dean Mother. Yeah. We love you, Ruby. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Jackie, you know, I love you too, girl. I love Thank, you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that was awesome! That was wow. That was so freaking awesome. Oh, oh I, was telling, I was telling. I just to listen. Like, it could be like that. Yeah, it's like that. Boom! Oh my god, that's good. <laughs> Tell Martha run. Tell mm -hmm. Mary run. I say mm -hmm. you got a right to the tree of life. Yeah, Man. right to the tree of yeah. life. Yeah. So what stuck with you? What stuck? What's gonna What's gonna stick tonight when you're when you're you know, home and with the kids or, you know, walking the dog, what's, what's going to be going through your head? I, I mean, I will just say, mm -hmm. you know, cause we both, we both are mentored by Ruby. Mm -hmm. I am so struck by her brain. Like, yes. who are you? She's like, big. she's just brilliant. Yeah. And the, and, you know, she says her brain's like a runaway train. It's always moving. It's always thinking. But it always comes back to something that's like she's yearning for our 
shared wholeness. And even though she'd be like, let's get our eyes off the white people, she's also never saying, let's hate the white people. No. She's always saying, how are we all going to get to the promised land together? Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. To be a girl who survived, who who only is alive to teach us because Jonathan jumps in front of the gunshot, her trauma is so deep, like it silenced her, Mm -hmm. but she just never relinquishes her hope that we can do better. Like always. Amen. Right? Yes. And she even speaks to white men about it. Like I have so she says don't don't center them, but she does care for them. She teaches them. Yeah. Because she I think she like womanists are thriving is tied up together. That's right. Anyway, so not- like she knows that the gaze is a prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For yeah. all of us, including white people. That's exactly That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. That's right. She wants that for white people too. She wants she wants us to escape and be free. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Her ability to be able to bring together multiple disciplines, move in it. I feel like she's a time traveler. Yes. You know, that she she's a time traveler. So we're listening to this time traveler. It's like you know, I'm I'm a Doctor Who nerd. So (laughs) (laughs) Doctor Who can go in between different moments of history. And different dimensions. I feel like we're listening to someone who is let me who's moving us between moments of history, all just consist con- consistently because her mind is functioning in on a d- deeper level. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> when she was she was breaking down the digital stuff, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, Dean, mother, yeah. you <laughs> are going in on the digital breakdown of democracy and. Technocratic, you know, I mean, that was, yeah. what, what was that word? It was a trend. Technocracy. Like, here is like, you know, you have people her age who can't, you know, operate a phone. Well, oh, you know, she's well, not that, great. She's not great. She's not great. She's not great. But she knows. But she understands the way in which when she was breaking about AI. And how that that I mean, I was just like, yes, that I mean, you, you're talking my language now. And then jump right back. She time travels. Right. Yeah. And she said from Fannie Lou to Megan Stallion. I was like, dang. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's Dave. Yeah. Said, I, I was talking the other day trying to book her for a thing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, how are you doing? And she just went right here. Mm-hmm. And then the te- techno and the digital and the AI. I was like, sweetie, I can't do it today. <laughs> My brain is so tired. I can't do it today. Yeah, she's she's so resilient and so smart. And she's like what we hope will all be. Yeah. You know? But the thing that really, honestly, the thing that I think the thing that I'm going to be thinking about tonight as I'm laying in bed, trying to go to sleep, thinking about all this stuff, is the need for us to dig deeper like the need for us to mm-hmm. go deeper into our spirit. We've been talking about this, but the spirituality, because it is that inner life mm-hmm. that the ancestors had that made them unshakable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I like that. And we, I think that, I think the young people, the young people, boy, do I feel old right now. But like, I think that mm-hmm. Gen Zers, I think that millennials have really been driving into that, especially through Black Lives Matter, that movement in particular. But there, but but her critique of it is really powerful. It is too individual. Mm. It, individual is not enough to deal with the oppression that they will face. Well, that's right. Mm. That 
that literally, that haunts me. Yeah. That haunts me. What's the tongue speaking you want folks to do as a result of meeting Fortune and company? Wow. I did a study of, of Acts 2 this last year. We did, we did a whole like series at, at Freedom Road on decolonizing the Bible. Mm-hmm. So when she said that, that literally blew my mind because I literally stayed up all night studying Acts 2. And what I found was that all of the languages, all of the, the, you know, the Parthians and the Mediites or I don't, you know, yep. whatever, Medians, they were all colonized people. Mm-hmm. All of them. And there was only one trade language that was allowed in the Roman Empire, and that was Greek. So the fact that they were all speaking each other's languages, that was actually a decolonizing moment. Ooh, that's good. That's what the tongues meant. Yep. The first act of the Holy Spirit on earth mm. was to decolonize the tongues, to, to release the tongues of people so they could speak in their own languages. Like that just blew my freaking mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when she said we need to start speaking in the in tongues, I mean that went right back to me. I was like, oh, it is, it is about decolonizing our stories. It is about reclaiming our stories. It is about it is about telling our own stories through our own gaze and going deep, not allowing it just to be a history lesson, but also to be a spiritual act, like the act itself. Yeah. of reclaiming our stories is a spiritual act. And that is what it was for me. Yeah, I mean, it was a 30-year journey. and But especially in the last several years, maybe the last 10 years since Obama came into the presidency, it has felt urgent. Mm-hmm. It's been with the rise of the Tea Party first and, and then, you know, January 6th, cray-cray. It is urgent now because not only is our country at stake, like we are, democracy itself is at stake, but quite honestly, our very lives are at stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my niece's life is at stake. Yes. Yeah. I worry for her future. And in order for us, in order for us to not go down that road, there's only really two choices. There's another civil war that we can have, or we can go deeper. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just black people. I mean everybody can go deeper. And white people will need to go deeper because they're going to need to go deep enough to face themselves, to see their own gaze, to recognize that it's a gaze. It's not the truth. Because they're going to die in a civil war too. Yes. Right. You can wage the war, but that only means you're more likely to die than if you didn't. That's right. Right. That's good. And so are your children and so are your wives and, you know, your mamas. So... Yeah. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you. What it means to be human is to have a story, to be embedded in a story. Jesus is embedded in a story, in a family story, no less. And half of the Gospels explicitly embed Jesus in the genealogical context of his colonized people's stories. And yet the Western church tends to gloss over that historical, political, sociological anchor of the text, or they lift Jesus from his context altogether, right? And and they think that they know him. But you can't know, you can't know Jesus and you can't know yourself if you think you know them outside of their context. So I'm struck that Western Empire did the same thing to us. Mm-hmm. We were lifted from our context by slave ships and chattel slavery. And according to ancestry, DNA, my father's 
Weeks' line of my family was first brought to Barbados in 1750. They actually can pin this now. 1750 or around 1750. And get this, within 20 years, our family's DNA was in every single island in the Lesser Antilles. Wow. Within 20 years, one generation. All of the islands of Lesser. So that is shattering. Shattering of family, shattering of story. And then you, I mean, imagine what happens is your identity becomes fragmented. And then you begin to think you are what you do. You are, you are only worth what through the white gaze, what you can earn for white people. But we didn't fold. We didn't fold. Instead, we found our own subversive anchors. The anchor of we lost the anchor of our family, but we found the bomba dance. Mm-hmm. Right. We found the festivals. We found family reunification after abolition. We and eventually we found the hustle. Because <laughs> 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 the hustle means our move us we move our bodies and, and yes. then we anchor to ourselves. So friends, thank you for being a part of this conversation today. It was really holy ground. I feel like we we walked on today. And friends who are listening. Follow Ruby Sales, y'all. Follow her on Facebook at Ruby Sales and also at Spirit House Project. And hey, you know, Fortune is out. Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All is available right now. And you can check it out. You can check out the downloadable video and study guide with corresponding digital workbook to get to go deeper and to work on that work of repair, to dig deeper, because that's what we're going to need for what we are facing coming up. And this episode is dedicated to Fortune Game McGee. Her body absorbed the wrath of the very first race laws on this soil. And she was separated from her children through the racialized construct of indentured servitude. And her descendants anchored themselves to her legacy by changing their last name to her first fortune. Hmm. to fortune we are because you were I'm Otis Moss III I'm Lisa Sharon Harper I'm Michael Ray Matthews I'm Jackie Lewis inviting you to learn more at the4.black.com 